Stuff Podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Wright and welcome to The Long Read from Stuff. This week's episode is called Miscarriage of Justice, the tragic case of Alan Hall. It's written by Stuff senior writer and my name twin, Mike White, who joins me now. Hi, Mike. Mike, how are you? All good. Um, Set this up for us. Readers might be familiar with the name in that title, but who is Alan Hall? Alan Hall was a 23-year-old Auckland man in 1985 who was convicted of murdering uh, father of five, Arthur Easton, uh, by breaking into his papakura house and stabbing him to death with a bayonet. And despite fitting virtually none of the descriptions uh, from eyewitnesses and having no history of violence, Hall was arrested and found guilty of the murder and sentenced to life in prison. In the end, he served 19 years uh, in jail and was only finally released in March this year. And in June, in a remarkable hearing, the Supreme Court ruled Hall had been the victim of a miscarriage of justice and quashed his convictions. One of the things that struck me about this case is that, for a start, readers might now be familiar with Alan Hall's name, thanks to your coverage and the media coverage recently. But his case, despite it being a gross miscarriage, isn't notorious. It's not like, you know, a Scott Watson case or Arthur Allen Thomas. Why do you think that is? No, you, you're, you're right, but it's not been for want of trying to publicise Hall's case. I mean, yeah. th- the truth is, Alan Hall's case has been a festering sore on the New Zealand criminal justice system for 36 years, and it was finally lanced by the Supreme Court this year. But before that, there was an appeal after his conviction, three applications for the Royal Prerogative of Mercy to the Governor-General, numerous investigations by journalists and others over the years. But all questions about the obvious flaws and concerns with Hall's case were rejected and often haughtily flung back by officials, including those at Crown Law, the Ministry of Justice and Police, um, until this year. And, and, And it's important to say that Hall's family fought tirelessly since 1985 to prove his innocence, especially his mother, Shirley, who even sold the family home to pay for lawyers and investigators. But eventually it was the combined efforts over the last four years of investigators Tim McKinnell and Kachi Parkwin and lawyer Nick Chisnell and the amazing work of former journalist Mike Wesley-Smith that got this case back to the Supreme Court and Alan Hall acquitted after 36 years. And so I think while it wasn't well known to New Zealanders until now, I think Alan Hall's case will become one of the starkest examples of a miscarriage of justice in our country's history, up there with Arthur Allen Thomas and Taina Pora. Yeah, I think I agree, having read the story. And yeah, on that point, two things about it. One is just the staggering scale of the miscarriage and the injustice meted out to him here in being convicted and you know not being front and center as a, as a case that was um you know appealed and appealed over and again but not many people knew about miscarriages of justice in New Zealand how do you how do you think we deal with them this case i think would suggest not very well I, th- I think you're right. I think what Alan Hall's case shows is just how incredibly difficult it is to overturn a wrongful conviction. As um, lawyer Greg King famously once remarked, the system values finality of verdict over correctness of verdict often. And, and what's 
the most damning thing about Alan Hall's case is that the evidence the Supreme Court accepted in June when it quashed his conviction, that's things like the deliberate doctoring of a witness statement by police, the hiding of crucial evidence by the prosecution, and um, the, the unfair nature of the interviews with Alan Hall, all that has been known for well over three decades by the authorities, by the police, the Ministry of Justice. It sat there in their files and they've rejected it. And even when this evidence was clearly put in front of Crown Law in 2018 and again in 2020, they said they had no responsibility and pushed it aside, all while Alan Hall remained in prison. And I think it's clear that unless you've got a committed team supporting you and championing your cause, you've got little to no hope of having your wrongful conviction overturned. And even if you do have that team, it's incredibly hard to get the system to admit it's got things terribly wrong. All right, thanks, Mike. Let's get into it. Here is me reading Mike's story, Miscarriage of Justice, the tragic case of Alan Hall. The day before Alan Hall appeared in the Supreme Court to appeal his murder conviction, he visited Parliament. Hall, 60, had never been to Wellington before, never travelled further south than New Plymouth in his life. He hadn't even been on a plane since 1985. That was the year police claimed he killed Auckland father of five Arthur Easton. Detectives later doctored evidence to convict him. They grilled Hall, who had an intellectual disability, for 23 hours without a lawyer. They hid crucial evidence from the jury. They carried out dubious experiments and even hypnotised witnesses. And then they celebrated when Hall was convicted and sent to prison for life. From the time of his arrest, Alan Hall fought to prove his innocence. But nobody in authority wanted to know, keener to wash their hands of Hall than admit a catastrophic error had occurred, more intent on closing the door on him than ensuring justice was done. And so here Hall was, padding up Parliament steps in crisp white shoes at dusk on a June evening, the gold of his sweatshirt clashing cheerily with the building's drab, grey stone. He stood there a moment, imagining the rulemakers and powers that be and bureaucrats inside who had ignored his case for decades, none of them lifting a finger to help him. No, Hall spat. They let me rot in prison. The murder came out of the blue. Arthur Easton, 52, a senior telecommunications manager, was at his Grove Road home in Papakura around 8pm on a Sunday evening in October 1985. One of his sons, Brendan, heard a noise and came out of his bedroom to find a stranger in the hallway. A long struggle ensued between the intruder and Brendan, his older brother Kim, and Arthur. During the fight, all three were stabbed with a bayonet. Arthur died from his injuries shortly afterwards. The attacker escaped out the back door, squeezed through a hedge into an adjacent alleyway and fled, leaving behind the bayonet and a woolen hat. 
Brendan and Kim initially described the man as six foot tall, powerfully built, right-handed, and Māori. And Ronald Turner, a crucial witness who saw someone running from the direction of the crime, insisted the man he saw was definitely Māori. However, two months later, police learned that 23-year-old Alan Hall, who lived nearby, had owned a bayonet like the one left at the murder scene, borrowed a hat identical to the one the intruder wore, and was walking near the Easton's home around the time of the murder. Hall, who at the time was described as intellectually backward and slow, he's since been diagnosed as autistic, gave varying answers about what had happened to his bayonet, including that it had been stolen, which led police to accuse him of lying. And the evidence pointing to Hall seemed substantial. But the problem was that all the eyewitnesses described the offender as someone completely different from Hall, who was a five foot seven, slightly built, asthmatic, left-handed Pākehā. So police hypnotised Brendan and Kim Easton to see if the brothers could recall any more details. Then they recreated the attack in the Easton's hallway, and afterwards Brendan and Kim changed their earlier statements and said the intruder could have been left-handed. They also became unsure about the attacker's ethnicity, despite having been clear about it straight after the murder. Police also staged a wholly unscientific experiment to test whether Ronald Turner could have identified the fleeing man as Māori and unilaterally judged Turner's description as unreliable. So they hid Turner's first two statements from Alan Hall's lawyers and changed his final statement that was read to the jury, without Turner's knowledge, to remove any reference to the offender being Māori or dark-skinned. They also concealed the earliest statements from the Eastern boys about the offender being Māori and the evidence of an ambulance driver who they repeated this description to. So at Alan Hall's trial in 1986, the jury had little reason to think the offender couldn't have been him and found him guilty. Despite Hall having no violent history, being so weedy that he had little likelihood of holding off three men in a prolonged struggle and showing no sign of injury. The offender was punched numerous times and smashed over the head with a wooden squash racket. Hall was sentenced to life behind bars and transferred to the maximum security wing of New Zealand's hardest prison, Paremoremo. The night before Hall's Supreme Court hearing, his lawyer, Nick Chisnell, slept restlessly. He had appeared in the country's top court many times. He knew the evidence of Hall's wrongful conviction was overwhelming. He had a new suit bought for the occasion, hanging in the wardrobe of his hotel room. But still, he couldn't shake the nerves. He woke at 1am, then at 3am, then at 5am, staring at the ceiling, his mind circling at speed. At 5.30am, he gave up, got up, and started going over his notes again. Chisnell had been approached to look at the case four years earlier and quickly realised not only had Hall's trial been riddled with flaws and failings, 
but that Hall was innocent. The deliberate altering of Ronald Turner's statement to obscure the offender's description was deceit, plain and simple, says Chisnell. And yes, I think corruption is probably a term that aptly fits what's happened. The case is riddled with myopia, and the only conclusion that can be reached is that the non-disclosures and changing of evidence and reconstructions were all attempts by the police to make the evidence match their theory, which was that Allen was the offender. Chisnell believes Hall's case is undoubtedly one of New Zealand's worst miscarriages of justice. It's up there with Tana Porter, he says. It's up there with Arthur Allen Thomas. And the fact it's taken 30 years to get to this point is an indictment on our criminal justice system. It demonstrates how hard a palpably innocent person has to work to overturn a conviction. Until January, when Chisnell filed the Supreme Court appeal, the justice system had repeatedly turned a blind eye to Alan Hall's situation, despite, Chisnell says, extensive proof of what had gone wrong with his case sitting in officials' files for decades. I've had a consistent feeling of anger about this case, he says, and frustration. And none of what's happened recently can give Alan back the nearly two decades he was in prison. Investigator Tim McKinnell, who worked on Hall's case for four years with his colleague Katja Paquin, shares Chisnell's exasperation at the extraordinary length of time it took authorities to review Hall's conviction. What's gone on is unforgivable, McKinnell says. Doing the right thing 36 years later doesn't fix all the wrongdoing. There's been a culture of thumbing your nose at those who claim they're wrongfully convicted, scoffing at it and saying, it hardly ever happens, not in this country. We're better than that. We're not. We never have been. And I think we've been kidding ourselves. One of the things I hear in cases like this is, It's the bad apple argument. It's the once in a blue moon argument. It's the it wouldn't happen now argument. Says who? I think we need to ask some pretty serious questions about not just how the police have failed, as they have, but how the Crown failed, how Crown law failed, how the judiciary failed, because they did, and how the whole system was able to let down not only somebody as vulnerable as Alan Hall, but the Eastern family. McKinnell, who also helped free Tana Porter after he was wrongfully convicted of murder and rape, says if they hadn't taken Hall's case to the Supreme Court, he'd probably still be in jail. And there are other people in prison, McKinnell says. You know them, I know them, who in all likelihood didn't do the things they were convicted of. And they've been there for decades, and will be there for decades more because they won't admit guilt. Police have launched two inquiries into Hall's case. One will review the original investigation and what avenues of reinvestigation remain. A separate investigation by Acting Detective Superintendent Graham Pitkethley will look into the circumstances around disclosure of evidence, which was at the heart of Hall's appeal. McKinnell, an ex-detective, is urging police to be up front. There's a series of things they need to do, he says. They need to catch Arthur Easton's killer. 
they need to look at whether their own have committed crimes in getting Alan convicted, and then they need to think about how they allowed their own inquiry to go off the rails so terribly. Today on Newsable, the coalition government is considering reintroducing the exporting of live animals after it was banned by Labour last year. What one animal welfare expert has to say about it. Plus, can rugby and politics ever really be separated? We're talking controversial haka ahead of this weekend's latest round of super rugby matches and the unusual form of currency a US library is accepting for fines. For everything that's worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you get your podcasts. In the hours before the Supreme Court's five judges returned with their judgment, Alan Hall paced the court's foyer, wearing his beanie, chatting with court staff, and sat outside while his brother Jeff vaped. Hall and his family had to pay all their airfares and accommodation to be at the court for his appeal the system denying responsibility or compassion to the last. And then a final indignity. Probation telling Hall the ankle bracelet he had been forced to wear since his release from prison in March would need to go back on as soon as he returned to Auckland that evening, insisting they needed paperwork from the courts before they could accept he was a free man. It seemed nobody wanted to be the first to allow the calluses on his ankle where the bracelet had cut in, let alone the effects of his 36 years as a convicted murderer, to begin healing. Sharing the weight with Hall and his family was former journalist Mike Wesley-Smith, whose 2018 podcast, Grove Road, was crucial in rekindling concern about Hall's case. Five years ago, Jeff Hall had rolled up his garage door to reveal the archive of the case, countless boxes containing records of the family's ceaseless fight to clear Alan's name. What Wesley Smith discovered in those boxes was evidence that showed Alan Hall was unlikely to have been the killer, and evidence the authorities had known about this for 30 years, but thrown it back in Hall's face. And when Wesley Smith revealed more evidence about police and prosecution malpractice, Crown Law, which oversees criminal prosecutions in New Zealand, continued to rebuff him, claiming it had no role or responsibility in the case. The Ministry of Justice, which had rejected three applications for appeal by Hall, employed the Latin term functus officio, or having discharged their duty, to wash their hands of the case when Wesley Smith asked them to act. Throughout all of this, Alan Hall remained in prison. As Wesley Smith puts it, there was just a complete absence of concern. And to be here four years later, he says, I feel really disappointed because I thought any recipient of that information should have been motivated to do what was the obvious right thing, to initiate an inquiry. It was just an unspeakable failure. Wesley Smith was the latest in a list of people stretching back decades who had been shocked by the official indifference to the fact the prosecution had intentionally manipulated and hidden evidence in order to convict Hall. Lawyer Bruce Stainton 
assisted the late Peter Williams at Hall's 1987 appeal and presented an application for the royal prerogative of mercy five years later. He says he was left shattered and disbelieving when authorities ignored proof of evidence being doctored and concealed and felt there was a determination to maintain the status quo. Stainton says Peter Williams was equally devastated and blamed himself for trusting the prosecution had been honest with him. In emotional terms, Stainton says, it rocked him each step of the way. Documentary maker Brian Bruce examined Hall's case in 2009 as part of his series investigating unsolved or controversial cases. Of all the cases I did, Bruce says, this was the one where I went, this person is absolutely innocent. I cannot understand how this person was convicted. Alan is intellectually challenged, so he was an easy target, and they bricked him in. The engineering of a false statement to go before the jury and dubious experiments to change witness evidence were the most blatant examples of official tampering Bruce had ever seen. I just thought it was diabolical, he says. The question of who was responsible for the egregious errors and deliberate actions that resulted in Hall's wrongful conviction remains unanswered, and Bruce is one of many calling for a full investigation. The officer in charge of the Arthur Easton murder inquiry, former Detective Senior Sergeant Calvin McMinn, told Mike Wesley-Smith in 2018 that the alterations to Ronald Turner's statement were made on the advice of the Crown Prosecutor because it was felt Turner's descriptions were unreliable. All decisions around what briefs of evidence were read to a jury and the form they took were decisions for the Crown Prosecutor, McMinn said. McMinn's second in charge during the investigation, Tony Smith, also stated that evidence was altered after discussions with the Crown solicitor. McMinn said the reconstructions and experiments conducted by police and the hypnosis of Brendan and Kim Easton were carried out by his supervisor, Detective Chief Inspector Brian Rowe. Rowe died in 2011. Former Crown solicitor Peter Kay, who prosecuted Hall at his trial, declined to comment while an investigation into the Crown's role was underway. However, Kay told Wesley Smith in 2018 he disagreed with McMinn's recollection that he was responsible for evidence being changed. At no stage in my career have I ordered a statement to be altered by deleting material aspects of it, he said. That is not something I would have done. In the minutes before Chief Justice Dame Helen Winkleman announced the justice system had failed Alan Hall and his murder conviction would be quashed, Hall sat in the centre of the Supreme Court's public gallery, surrounded by his family and 37 years of recriminations. Prepare for an unfiltered journey through the harsh realities of infertility. My name's Nadine Higgins. I'm a broadcaster, a journalist, and I've been trying to make a baby with my husband. That's me. I'm Dan. And we reckon infertility is lonely enough without making it a dirty little secret. 
In The Human Race with Dan and Nadine Higgins, we share raw and unvarnished stories of couples who have faced the brutal truth of infertility. Unless you've been in it, it's, it's really tough and really lonely. Yeah, and also, this is really weird, but baby showers, you don't need to open the presents in front of everyone. Confronting the harsh reality that not every story has a happy ending. This very blunt, abrasive doctor who I had, you know, had not seen before, who delivered the news, just like, you'll probably never have a natural period again and you'll probably never have a baby. The Human Race, where we share the untold stories of couples in the race of their lives to create a life. I feel like I nearly missed out and I got to do it. And so I feel really lucky. So it's been incredibly positive. Listen today at stuff.co.nz slash thehumanrace or wherever you get your podcasts. The Human Race is proudly brought to you by Elevit. Mark, if we look at News Hub, the potential of that closing its entire operation in June, the cuts at TVNZ, what's at risk here? Well, look, we get into this whole thing, you know, democracy is at risk, but News Hub, from their first days, always tried to do things a little bit differently and may have been considered a little bit more sort of kick-ass and less respectful to the politicians. But you need that. I mean, our job is not to be sort of cheerleaders for whoever. It should be to sort of to question and, uh, and to keep people informed. If you don't have a news media sort of calling people out, it's the wild west. For everything that's worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you get your podcasts. In an extraordinary move, Crown Law's Madeleine Laracy and Emma Hoskin had conceded Hall had suffered a serious miscarriage of justice and should be acquitted. With grace and courage previously missing from Crown Law's actions, Laracy and Hoskin introduced themselves to Hall before the hearing, indicating that once they learnt what had happened to him, there was no question they had to write it. And after Chief Justice Winkleman had delivered the court's judgement and the judges had filed out and the registrar had adjourned the court and those remaining had burst into applause, Hall embraced Laracy and Hoskin as warmly as everyone else in a swirl of hugs and thanks, and backslapping. I was going to stand up and say, you little beauty, Hall joked about the court's decision, his eyes glinting above the line of his face mask. Nick Chisnell looked exhausted, hanging over the court's barrier like a boxer draped over the ropes. It's exceptional, he says. I had a tear in my eye. One of the most emotional moments I've had in court. Outside, Jeff Hall addressed the media, saying what had just occurred was a victory for Alan, his family and all New Zealanders. We fought against injustice and we won today, he said. Our story is told. Alan Hall's summation was simple. It should never have happened. A bitter evening breeze swept down Lambton Quay. Across the road, through first-floor windows, people paced on treadmills at a gym. Commuters sheltered in a nearby bus stop. Cyclists bent into the wind. And buses angled through gaps in the traffic. Around the corner, Alan Hall bundled himself into a taxi, unsettled by the cameras, keen to get to the airport, impatient to put the last 37 years behind him as best he could.
That was Miscarriage of Justice, the tragic case of Alan Hall on the long read from Stuff, written by Mike White and read and produced by me, Michael Wright. This episode was edited by Connor Scott. If you're listening via the Stuff website, you can hear this story and many more like it on the Long Read podcast, available on all the usual podcast apps. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening. Stuff Podcasts. If you like this podcast, please support our work. Visit stuff.co.nz support.